You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Pornography has been pretty much wholly normalized in our society. It's expected that men and boys use it. It's joked about and it's treated as a harmless pastime, really interchangeable with masturbation. But the industry is anything but harmless. Benjamin Nolo is the founder of Exodus Cry, an NGO that is committed to abolishing sex trafficking and breaking the cycle of commercial sexual exploitation. He recently produced a series called Beyond Fantasy, looking at popular genres of porn like Barely Legal and Gonzo Porn, as well as the reality of coercion, violence, and health impacts like STIs on those we see on film in porn. I watched the the series that you produced, Beyond Fantasy, and it was very upsetting to watch. Um, I'm really grateful that someone is doing this work and telling the truth about the porn industry because... The propaganda, the propaganda around the porn industry is immense. Um, I have no idea how the porn industry has managed to exist like this for so long, never mind to convince so, so many people that, you know, it's harmless, Mm -hmm. that women are just choosing to be there. You know, there's there's men that I talk to who, if I talk to them about porn, will say, well, you know, like, maybe they're just women who really like sex or, you know, they're making a lot of money. Like, it's not it's not real. Um, It's just a fantasy. It's just acting. And then when you watch, you know, the episodes that you've produced, um, I think think that it's impossible to tell yourself those kinds of lies anymore. I would hope that it would be impossible to tell yourself those kinds of lies anymore. Um, but I am curious to know, um, first of all, how, how and why did you get into doing this work? I know you found an Exodus cry back in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you want to, fight the sex industry and, and expose the truths about this industry. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting journey because it's not one that I had planned. Um, I it's, it's one of those things where I kind of pulled on the thread, so to speak, and it just it just began to unravel into this whole massive undertaking that has um, preoccupied the last 15 years of my life. So when I look back at my own personal story, I can see that there was a thread there and I'm like, Oh wow, that's, that's really interesting. It it feels providential in that sense. Um, I think for me, the, the issue, uh, began when I was 11 years old, I watched a movie called the accused. Um, in that movie, Jodie Foster plays a woman named Cheryl Arroyo and it, it's a real-life story about this woman's gang rape in a bar 
and then her ensuing fight for justice. And growing up as the youngest of four kids, I, in, in somewhat of an idyllic setting, I was very kind of sheltered. And for me, that was really my introduction to the knowledge of the presence of evil in the world. And the what happens in this movie is that this woman is raped, gang raped in a bar while patrons cheer. And it's in, in the actual real life scenario, it took place over a period of two hours. So it was this really horrific thing that happened. And then and then just the injustice of her, you know, trying to bring accountability to her perpetrators. And so for me at 11 years old, that really marked me with this deep sense that rape has to be the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. I was also raised by my two older sisters and my mom and my grandma. Um, and so I think I had from a young age a lot of female influence in my life. And so was maybe more able to uniquely identify with the experiences of women in the world. And when I found out about the issue of human trafficking, um, I had a bit of a background in film and um, and I found out about this issue of human trafficking, scores of women being forced into prostitution. And I was so undone. And it again, it didn't immediately become this idea that I'm going to start an organization or really do anything. It just began with this burden. And as I carried that burden and learned more, um, it eventually evolved into a desire to help tell the story of what was going on. And so I began work on a documentary called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. And it was just to bring this back full circle to where we started. It was during the period of four years that I was traveling the world and documenting the phenomenon of global sex trafficking, where I began to see these five overlapping areas where pornography intersects with sex trafficking. And so that was very enlightening for me. And after we released Nefarious in 2011, we went back to the drawing board and um, literally whiteboarded a session in 2012 with a couple of colleagues outlining a plan to address the subject of pornography from a human rights and public health viewpoint. So how pornography is created and the impact on, on, on the performers, and then uh, the how pornography impacts consumers. And so that has been a 10-year journey and um, evolved into all kinds of things, which we can talk about. There's a lot of layers to pull apart with this, to pull back with this. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about pornography over the years. I'm sure you've talked to many, many more. Um, I wonder, you know, people people make a lot of excuses for pornography. Um, and when I've talked to men about the harms of pornography and the abuse that happens in pornography, um, they'll often say things like, you know, that's not the porn that I watch. I'm not watching that violent stuff. I'm not watching the, you know, pedophile stuff, the ones where they, they emulate kids. Like, I'm just watching regular porn. Or they'll say, but I'm just watching amateur porn. It's not, you know, it's just people who are wanting to have sex on camera. Um, 
I mean, what do you what do you say to those kinds of people? Have people said that kind of thing to you before? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's really it's helpful to see a film like Beyond Fantasy because your starting point can be this really violent destruction of human beings that's like very clearly wrong, very clearly um, exploitation and, and sexual assault. And then you can kind of reverse engineer from there. If you start with, well, I just watched these two, you know, Swedish girls, blah, blah, you know, whatever. It, they, there's the oh, there's that narrative that of the example that appears to be harmless. So I think that's probably not the most helpful place to start because the reality is, and you know, and one of the things that I really appreciate about, appreciate about you is your work to expose the cover narrative of the commercial sex industry and reveal the deeper truth of the inherent harms within this system. And so for us, um, having spent 10 years reading everything that's ever been written on pornography, every study, and going deep into the porn industry and talking with pornographers and performers, came away with a very clear perspective of the reality of what pornography is. And for me, sitting down with the performers you know, to your point, I would have, you know, my old <laughs> heathen friends like say things like, man, I don't know how you do it. I'd just be hooking up with all those girls, you know, just that kind of lingo. Mm -hmm. And um, and just having really no idea how stomach turning it was and how revolting it was to actually sit and talk with these people. And I say that from a compassionate lens. It's not a judgment against the performers at all. It's more a, a clear observation and an analysis and an insight into the reality of what is involved with the creation of pornography. And when you see it for what it is, um, it becomes much more difficult to hold that cover narrative intact. And, um, and the, the fantasy, the facade begins to fall apart. And um, and so that was a really important thing for me in the way that we shaped Beyond Fantasy was not sugarcoating it and crafting it in a way that could give people enough insight without just totally, you know, uh, traumatizing them, but give people enough insight to have a similar stomach turning, revolting experience. Um, because I think, you know, a couple of things. One, there are people who say, well, there's nothing wrong with pornography and, um, you know, they have no moral issue with it at all whatsoever. There's that crowd. And then there's the crowd of people who are really stuck in the cycle of pornography consumption and want to be free from that and can't figure out a way to break that cycle of consumption and live in this ping pong relationship with shame and behavior and acting out. And so I think that Beyond Fantasy is a really powerful series to help reframe people's understanding of the porn industry for those that, you know, would even care to see the truth. And um, I just, I think that's a really important thing. I, when I, my, my entire worldview is based on the premise that the, the battles that we face in this world are not so much the forces of good and evil, but truth and deception. 
and the pornography industry is an entire system of, as you said, propaganda and deception. The reality is absolutely stomach turning. And so that was, yeah, a huge part of our journey of investigating the porn industry and really seeing the three dimensional lives of the people who were being used to create this content and the way that their lives were utterly destroyed by it. I wonder, I mean, do you think that there is pornography that is harmless? You know, when we listen to these kinds of excuses, I, I mean, I think that we know what the reality is. Like if you go to Pornhub or if you just Google porn online, mm-hmm. what comes up is not <laughs> just regular sex, right. like whatever yeah. that means. It's right. like hardcore pornography. Like it's like facial abuse and it's like teen girl. Mm. I'm not going to swear. I'm trying to avoid swearing on the podcast, although I don't always manage, you know, like yeah. stuff that is violent and abusive or at very least depicting violence and abuse and adult men, you know, having sex with minors, um, incest porn, so on and so forth. Like, I don't know how people can continue to repeat that narrative, especially if they're men who watch pornography. I mean, if you're a man who watch porno- watches pornography, I think you probably know mm-hmm. what's common and what's out there. And you know, as well as anyone or better than most people, in fact, that this really violent porn, this rape porn, this abusive pornography is being watched by millions and millions and millions of people around the world. You know, like it's not on the sidelines. It's not marginalized. I mean, but is there, do you think, do you think that there's porn that's harmless? Like, is that a, something that exists? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's several angles to come at this from. First of all, if you're behind a screen accessing pornography on the other side, you really don't know the story of the person that you're access, whose, whose images that you're accessing. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the people I sat down with was a contract quote unquote star for digital playground. So they're the largest, you know, porn production company. And, um, and it's considered in that industry, the highest kind of achievement to become a, a, a contract star for them. So I sit down to interview her and we're sitting across from each other. And before I even ask one question, She looks across at me and she says, you know, there's something I want to tell you. She goes, and I don't even know why I'm going to tell this to you because I've never told this to anyone. And she begins to unpack the story of the way that she was trafficked into pornography. So if you were to visit this person's Twitter feed, you would see a very two-dimensional, two-dimensional image, a come-hither look, an appearance that this woman is a part of this subclass of, of human beings who enjoy nothing else except sexual exhilaration and erotic pleasure. And, um, but the backstory of her was a completely different reality. And so even in those cases where people say, well, I've gone 
to this side and this is a contract person and I've heard her in interviews and you really just don't know. There was a, another example of a young woman that I interviewed who had seen a Jenna Jameson special on E! Entertainment when she was young and then when she turned 18 felt like this is this is the answer. This is how, just like Jenna Jameson, this is how I'm going to achieve visibility, connection, um, create financial you know, independence for myself, joining the porn industry. She was six months in to her career. I, I, don't, I don't even, that's not the right word for it, but her uh, time in porn as a performer. And, um, and the stories that she was describing to us were so gnarly, like one after the next. And the interview reached this point where I felt like the most appropriate next question to ask her was just, you know, what do you really want in life? I, I, didn't really, I was just at such a loss for words. And, um, and I remember, you know, I'll, I'll never forget this moment. It, it, it messed me up for, yeah, it's, it's, it still makes me emotional, but with tears streaming down her eyes, her face, she said, um, I just want to be loved. And we sat there for a minute and her countenance completely changed. She had broken out of the character and I was able to see the real person. And I said, well, what do you think that would look like? And she said, well, just somebody bringing me flowers. Nobody's ever bought me flowers before. And, um, a couple days later, she called us from the hospital. And she had been rushed to the hospital with complications from all the sex she was having in pornography. She had an infection. And I just thought it was so revealing that for her, in her world, she would think to call us, who we just met one time two days prior. Like we were the safest people that she knew to reach out to. And so we were able to bring her flowers to the hospital and had the, the privilege and the honor of being the first people to bring her flowers and really just to show her dignity. And, um, and that was a really powerful moment. And it, it made me realize that this whole industry operates on the basis of dehumanization, of objectification. And as you get into pornography, you realize really what pornography is. Um, when you just examine the larger landscape of pornography, it's very obvious that it is an extremely misogynistic industry. I mean, the acts that these women are expected to carry out or to have perpetrated on them are nothing short of the total destruction of their humanity the stealing of all goodness and innocence, the desecration of their humanity, and an utter humiliation of their womanhood. And so we saw, like, in a very visceral, life-changing way that pornography was ultimately not about men's love for women. It was about men's hatred of women. And one of these Johns that we interviewed explained to us, he said, my acting out was a way of making her pay 
for being a woman. So there's a deep underlying misogyny that we must know well that fuels this industry. And so I think for people that are listening to this, rather than seeking out that example of pornography that might possibly, you know, have been consensual, I think it's it's better to look at pornography through the lens of, I actually have no idea who this person is, what their story is, no matter how, whatever quote unquote ethical lens it's presented in, I just don't know. And do I want to participate in fueling an industry that is destroying people's humanity? That's, I think, an honest self-evaluation that pornographer consumers have to have. And, um, but yeah, as you said at the outset, it's such a propaganda machine that this cover narrative that we've all, you know, that most of our society has internalized says this is empowering, this is liberating, this is a human right, and, you know, this person's getting paid, they deserve to be there, all, all that stuff. A, a deeper, more compassionate analysis would expose the, the deep inherent harms associated with the creation of pornography. Right. And even, you know, the porn producers that you spoke with mm-hmm. um, in these documentaries, they admit you know they'll say outright things like we want to destroy her yes we don't want her to be happy you know they they're trying to hurt these girls and women um because it sells which is really it's really abhorrent to be faced with that reality that that is what a lot of male porn watchers are looking for totally um, I mean, one of the most shocking people in the series was Max Hardcore. Mm-hmm. Tell us who he is. Okay. So what, yeah, I, so this opens up a bigger can of worms. So there's the issue that we've been discussing, which is the idea that we don't fully know or understand or have insight into the real lives of those who are appearing in pornography. Um, But most enter pornography at a very vulnerable age, 18, 19 years old. And, uh, you know, the, what we understand now through neuroscience and uh, research on the brain is that the frontal cortex of our brain, the judgment center of our brain isn't even fully developed until our mid to late twenties. 18 to 19 is such a transitional, vulnerable age. And so um, so for a lot of people, they would look just at this idea of the person who has entered porn willingly. And, and it's sort of like, if I can check that box, then it makes it all okay. But let's just assume that's the truth for a second. Let's assume we can qualify the choice of an 18-year-old to enter porn as a level-headed decision. And let's just assume for a second that they you know, were actually just so sexually ravenous, they couldn't, you know, do anything else other than be filmed with, you know, different strangers having the, you know, performing sex acts on them all all the time and vice versa. Let's just assume that for a second. Well, what you're ultimately going to run into if you're that person. So we've created another series that comes out next year called Entering Pornland, which is about the individual stories of people that went into porn. 
if you're one of those people, what you're going to run into is a system that is designed to destroy you. And the pornographers that we spoke with were very explicit about that. Um, you know, this character that you're talking about, Max Hardcore, is has been voted by the AVN into the Pornography Hall of Fame. So the AVN is like their version of the Academy Awards. He is a pioneer, the pioneer of gonzo pornography, which is this hardcore, violent version of pornography that dominates the Internet. And um, and he told us, you know, that his objective is to sell innocence. He is recruiting girls who have, you know, in, who have never done pornography or very new to it and is wanting to capture the experience of them being completely overwhelmed and broken on camera. And so it's this really heady wine that he's offering of the destruction of a person's innocence and the destruction of a person's humanity. And he's, you know, engineering these films in a very specific way towards that end. So I, you know, listening to him talk, the admissions that he was giving us was just purely mind blowing. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm trying to, you know, stay in, in my role as a documentarian investigative journalist, just to kind of mine his, you know, his world. And my strategy for that was to try to get him to relive the experience of creating pornography the way that he likes to do it. I want to take him back to the set and, and bring him into that moment. And when he went there, his eyes completely changed. And he began to offer up insight that was just so alarming. And, um, and one of the things I said to him is I'm like, okay, so she's on sh set, she's broken, and you know, kind of like, where do you go from there? He's like, okay. So he starts smiling when I say that to him. So he's, he's right there present with me. He's reliving it in that moment. And he begins to smile this very like eerie smile of enjoyment of that scenario. And then he says, when she's shivering and she's shaking and, you know, he, he's, you know, describing this situation where she's been completely traumatized in the context of making a, a porn film with him. He said, I just lay it on harder and I lay it on harder and I lay it on harder until they snap, until we find the end, until she's in a heap on the floor and I'm pissing on her. He goes, and that's the most beautiful thing in the world. So it's hard to hear it even. Yeah, I. I know that I experienced a lot of vicarious trauma from talking with these sociopaths. I even asked him at one point, I said, you know, listen to you talk, you sound like a sociopath. And he said, well, I don't know exactly what a sociopath is. He goes, but I'm a hardcore pornography pornographer and I didn't get this way overnight. It took me 25 years to get here. So what we are talking about is people who have perfected the craft of destroying human life and putting it on film to serve the appetites of porn consumers at home who 
can no longer get aroused by vanilla sex. And that's a whole other point of like, you offer your up your sexuality to these pornographers. You don't know the ride that's gonna take you on and what how that is gonna shape your sexual appetites and what you need to get off. And um, yeah, I'll stop there because <laughs> There's so much I have to say. I'll stop there for a moment. It's a very troubling interview with Max Hardcore. Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was really, it was really disturbing. It was quite like traumatic just yeah. to watch and to to hear what he had to say and to to see or hear about some of those scenes. I mean, to me, he read as a sadist and and a sociopath, you know, he clearly gets off on hurting and abusing and destroying girls and women. Um, and I mean, one of the, one of the things that he said that was very strange for him to admit, but revealing was with regard to this, um, the, you know, teen porn or the kind of pornography that's depicting girls you know they skirt around the age that they're trying to depict but they also admit you know the porn performers and producers admit you know it could be anywhere from 12 to 18 but all the girls are 18 but we choose girls who can look very young and then dress them up like children and get them to talk like children and to behave like children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the excuse that's made in the mainstream and by, you know, people who are advertising or promoting porn is often, you know, like, it's just a fantasy. It's not real. Everyone knows it's just a fantasy. It's not real. These girls are 18 and so on and so forth. And then Max Hardcore says that he's he's making instruction manuals. You know, he says that he's creating instruction manuals for men, that he's teaching adult men how to predate on and rape girls with this pornography. Yeah. Yeah. It's so the idea of barely legal pornography is really more about barely illegal so yeah the 18 year old is the threshold because that's what's legal but clearly they're trying to dress these girls up as prepubescent teens and that's the scenarios that's that they play out having girls say that they're 12 or that they haven't reached puberty yet and these kinds of things so it's it's really entertaining that fantasy of sexual intercourse with a prepubescent child and um, and he was, you know, as you point out, he was very forthright about that, as well as the aspect of sexual assault that is a part of his particular genre of pornography as well. Because I asked him, I was like, uh, I said, you know, looking at these scenes, it looks like a sexual assault is taking place. And he kind of cut me off and goes, oh, yeah. And he, he's like half chuckling. He says, yeah. It's a full-blown – am I allowed to swear? I, I can – Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. It's a full-blown ass-fucking assault because that's what people want to see. And <laughs> so, yeah, it um, – and, and, then, and then right after that, he went off camera 
and our audio picked him up talking with another performer and saying, you know, what they really need to know, what the public doesn't understand, but what they really need to know is that these girls are just meat muppets that need to be destroyed. So, um, so I think for us as men, we have a very complicated relationship with women. And, um, I think that for men who, who grow up with an inherent desire to feel powerful in their world, oftentimes feel most powerless in the presence of women. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, there was a study done that revealed that the, the sex drive of men versus women is really all, not all that much different. And, um, and so when you look at the fact that in prostitution, 98% of those being sold are women, 99% of those doing the buying are men, you begin to understand that this is about more than sex. This is about having power over a woman and it's about subjugating women. And, um, and I think it's, it's, it's almost impossible to understand men unless you understand that men fear women. It, it sounds almost ironic to say that, um, but it's, it's true, it's the reality for most men. And so they use this, so pornographers have created this very vicarious experience for men who feel powerless in their relationship with women, who feel afraid to engage with a real woman, offer them the vicarious opportunity to control, dominate, subjugate, and humiliate women in the world of pornography. So one way to think about pornography is that these handful of pornographers in the San Fernando Valley have created very intentionally the porn universe. And then they offer an avatar to men to access that universe, which is the porn man. Men in porn aren't really that important. They're simply, you know, as Gil Dine says, a life support system for their erect penis. So they're there for one reason, to dominate, punish, humiliate, and ejaculate on these women. And so men accessing that world, access through this porn man avatar, and then live out this vicarious, vicarious experience of having power over a woman and that offers some small level of satiation it's it's not real it's it's coupled with shame and self-hatred and there's a lot that goes into that but it offers them this intoxicating experience of having powerful of being powerful in a world that they feel so powerless and so max hardcore has really tapped into that reality and tried to offer that experience to viewers. The reason I'm saying all this is to say that maybe there are men out there who are listening to this who think to themselves, you know, well, yeah, there, you know, I was rejected or I was betrayed in this situation or I was humiliated in this situation. Maybe there's some um, resentment, some unforgiveness that, that men have in their life experience towards women. But the thing that I... Uh, you know, try to emphasize is 
this reality that we all have female friends, we all have mothers, we all have sisters. We have to find a way to personalize this issue um, and not be seduced into the dehumanization and objectification of women that rationalizes and justifies their degradation. And, um, and you know, I know that, that that reality ruins the erection for a lot of men, but I think it's a good starting place for us to begin that journey of becoming whole people. I just don't actually believe that you can be a whole man while also having a pornography, um, consuming pornography as a lifestyle. I just don't even believe that's possible. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think like I've, I've asked men in my life who defend pornography, um, defend their own porn use. Like, do you really, really, truly think that a good man, a man who is a good man, who is ethical, who has integrity, who is authentic, who cares about, you know, you know, creating a better world. Do you think that he watches pornography? Do you think he pays for sex? Do you think he buys prostitutes? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what does that say about you? And it's not necessarily that I'm invested in shaming men who watch porn because I don't know that that works because I think there's already a great deal of shame involved in porn watching. I think a lot of men who do use porn use it and then feel ashamed and disgusted with themselves over what they've just you know masturbated to Mm -hmm. um but i think that men have to think about you know if i want to be a good man what does that mean and is this included in that absolutely and i think i mean i think it's interesting that you say that you think that a lot of men fear women Um, Because I never thought about it in that way, but I think that you're right. You know, when I think about men who engage with women in misogynist ways, and I'm thinking about things like going to strip clubs or paying for sex, but I'm also thinking about like, um, you know, much older, wealthy, powerful men who kind of exclusively go after 25-year-olds, like really age-inappropriate relationships. They go after women who are very clearly not their equals. Like those men, to me, very clearly do feel extremely intimidated by women. Mm-hmm. They're scared to be around a woman who's confident, mm-hmm. who will challenge them, who will call them on their bullshit, who sees through their bullshit. Um, and And that's why they engage in these you know one-dimensional relationships with women so that they can't get hurt they can't get rejected they don't have to be vulnerable and you know they really don't have to have a real full relationship they don't have to risk anything um, in these one-sided relationships whether that relationship is with us you know a woman on the other side of the screen or a woman on stage at the strip club, both of whom you know, don't desire this man um, and are just behaving in these fake sexual ways for money, um, or with a woman who's so much younger than him that she's naive to the situation. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's so accurate. I think that you're you're right on, and it's um, so in that way. You know, just to to quote Kaisa Ekis Ekman, who I know you've 
has written articles for you and you've talked with a bunch. She says that um, inequality is the basis of all prostitution because you have somebody there who does not want the sex and then you have somebody there um, who wants the sex and because there's somebody there who doesn't want the sex, payment takes place. And I've heard her give an analogy where she talks about this idea that there's two people sitting at a table, the sex buyer and then the one coming in who's being sold for sex. And the sex buyer pulls out the stack of money and he puts it on the table and he says, you can take the money and leave or you can stay for the sex. And what do you think is going to happen? And, you know, it's clear that 10 times out of 10, she's going to take the money and leave because she's not there for the sex. So um, this this um, so I mean, I'm getting a little bit, you know, off subject into the aspect of prostitution. But I, I just think that across the board of whether it be sugar daddy, sugar, sugaring, sugar daddy relationships, prostitution, um, power dynamics that play out because of age and wealth and all those things are are ways to coerce and bribe women into complicity with the sexual appetites of men. And to your previous point about, you know, which is a very perspective giving insight is, can you imagine, you know, the best man that you can think of out paying women, you know, in prostitution to have sex. And, um, and I think that into in, inherently we understand that there's some violation um, of a person's humanity in that scenario. And I know that for me, like uh, just kind of logically thinking that through, if I, if I actually believe my own cover narrative about pornography and prostitution and all this, if I actually believe it, if I actually think that there are women out there that, you know, this is really just what they want and this can be a really liberating and empowering experience for them, then you have to follow that logic all the way through to a scenario that's close to you. So for me, I have a daughter and you think about, would I endorse my daughter pursuing a life in prostitution, which will involve her, you know, existing for the purpose of satisfying the sexual appetites of strange men, different men all day, every day. Is that a reality where I could envision my daughter thriving and empowered and liberated? And if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is no. So really these cover narratives that we have internalized and that we tell ourselves are, are skin deep. They're very shallow justifications and rationalizations for uh, you know, stewarding one's sexuality in this way. And the point of saying this isn't to shame anyone. I love what Tony Porter from A Call to Men says. He says, we invite men, we don't indict men. Mm-hmm. And we have a documentary coming out, premiering here at the Newport Beach Film Festival coming up in a couple of weeks called Buying Her, which is a film um, all about sex buyers. And um, and I'm I'm really excited at the opportunity to get this film out there because for us, it's it's really the first time in 15 years where we're actively assertively inviting men in a very specific way into this conversation, not to shame them, 
but to invite them into the conversation to be a part of understanding and unpacking the realities of what the sex industry actually is. Stripping, pornography, prostitution, sugar daddy, reality, all of that. And I think that analysis is so important for this pornified age that we live in if we are truly going to become whole men. And I just think that now more than ever, our world needs real men. We need real men in this world and uh, authentic men who value mutuality, who approach sexual relationships with empathy, who have uh, an understanding and empathetic insight into the you know unique experiences of women um, throughout history and um, those kinds of things. So I think this work is really, really important for these times that we live in and we have a lot of work in front of us. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a massive, massive endeavor in a massive, massive industry. I mean, one of the things that I continue to have get, have trouble getting my head around is why is this legal? Like, you know, when you look at some of the scenes that you show um, in the episode about hardcore porn, it seems to me that those that it qualifies as rape you know these girls mm. are actually being hurt very badly they're actually being abused um there was that um scenario with max hardcore um that he talked about and and you guys did you know an animated version of the scene because it was too disturbing to show and i i think it was in 2004 and He'd met this very young woman um, on vacation and convinced her to do a porn scene with him. And she's doing porn for the first time. And what happened, to my mind, is that he raped her. Yes. Like, why is, why is he not arrested? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought this point up because it's something that is just... It's so outrageous that this way of creating pornography not only exists but have gotten has no there's no criminal culpability involved there's no accountability and again for us that's part of why these films are so important is bringing accountability to perpetrators and i am such a deep believer in documentary film as one of the most effective ways to do that and um and so I really implore people to watch this documentary, even though it's difficult. There's lots of disclaimers, qualifiers, you know, but I think it's an important documentary to watch from that standpoint. But to, to, this, to this issue at hand, when I was making Nefarious, or again, our documentary on global sex trafficking, one of the five areas that we saw where pornography was overlapping and intersecting with sex trafficking was in the porn industry and the way that pornography is created. I'm talking about the mainstream pornography industry that is primarily based in the San Fernando Valley of California. Coercion was the backdrop of virtually all pornography. And I want to just take a moment to break this down because it's really important to understand the way that the, that the industry works. So 
let's say again you're you're an 18 year old you have this bright idea to become rich and famous in pornography fine whatever let's just assume that scenario for a second um so what in all likelihood you're going to end up in with an agent and what the the job of the agents is to establish the interface with the pornographers and to give the pornographers access to a, a, a client base of performers. And so when these girls go in, they fill out a yes and no form. It's a form that is meant to uh, delineate the sex acts that they're okay with versus the ones that they're not. So straight away, right from the get-go, they will be made they will be informed and be made to know that if you say, you know, I don't want to do anal, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, you're not going to get work. And so right from the get-go, there's pressure, coercion that is used to already begin to get these performers comfortable with violating their own personal sexual boundaries. Now, the biggest agent in the entire industry, Derek Hay, who runs LA Direct Models, was also implicated for sex trafficking because he set up a escort agency, quote unquote, high class escort agency on the side where these girls were, let's say, heavily suggested to work in or their work would also dry up. And um, so right at the outset, now, one, now from the angle of the pornographer, one pornographer told me this. He said, I call them up, I call up the performer, and I tell them, this is what you're going to do, and this is how much you're going to get paid. Now, these girls oftentimes live in model houses. They have agents, drivers, um, and everything, they're taxed exorbitant fees for these things. So it's very difficult to make money for them. But um, even in a best-case scenario where somebody's not you know, in a, in a model house and all of that, um, in all likelihood, we'll still have an agent and the the finances aren't what they make it out to be. So he told me, I do this intentionally. I tell them how much they're going to make. So they spend that money in their head. When they show up to set, they've already spent the money. They already have to pay their agent, their driver, the model house, and they've already spent the money in their head for the remaining amount, whatever that is. So he goes, so, so now the agreement is they're going to do this vanilla sex scene. That's what we talked about. That's how I get them there. That's what he told me. I get them there by saying, you're going to do this vanilla sex scene. You're going to get paid this much. He said, then in the middle of the scene, I flip the script and I say, now you're going to have to do this, this, and this to get paid. Now he has the pressure of everyone on set. He has the fact that she's already, you know, um, exposed herself to this entire scenario she's been penetrated she's whatever has already happened and now in order for her to get paid she's got to do this this and this and so he looks at me and he goes so tell me how is that not trafficking that's what a pornographer said to me and i'm like you tell me you know straight from the horse's mouth like yeah. there's there it, it was amazing how candid these pornographers were and how conscious they were of what they were getting away with. So the backdrop of the creation of all pornography is a backdrop of coercion 
And that is one of the key characteristics of trafficking, force, fraud, or coercion. So, uh, so when we think about the porn industry and we think about the content that's out there, people have to understand that the vast majority of this was created against a backdrop of coercion. Now, there was a series done on a large platform that was meant to convey this idea of ethical pornography. And it, it opens up with birds chirping and these people frolicking out and outside and the female porn director talking about how ethical her approach is to pornography and she's going to film this scene. Eventually, towards the end of the episode, we get to this scene and there's a woman playing at the piano and it's supposed to be very romantic. Well, the man begins to penetrate her from behind and he's pulling her hair back and clearly the woman at the piano is very uncomfortable. And so the director has to call cut and the performer says, you know, I'm in pain. And the so-called ethical porn director says, well, just fake it. And and encourage and cajoles this female performer into enduring the pain of this sexual scenario to give her this ethical porn experience that she could repackage and sell as something that is, you know, above board. And so it's all a lie. Um, the porn industry is selling us a lie, a, a, a lie about who women are, a lie about what sex is a lie about who men are, it, it's the entire porn industry is a system of deception. It's um, like Chris Hedges' book titled The Empire of Illusions. It is an empire of illusion. And that's, that is what men get seduced and lured into. And, and even nowadays, women as well is, is a uh, it's not so much, I don't think, a moral and a spiritual struggle as it is a neurological addiction, a, a neurological struggle and a fantasy addiction, an escape into a fantasy world to enact one's sexuality that is totally devoid of truth, of humanity, of compassion, of mutuality, of everything that would make sex a truly satisfying whole experience. So... <laughs> Obviously, I don't have much good to say about porn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to just come across as this one note of a, a negative Nancy. But I just have to be unapologetic about, you know, sharing my findings because these things are totally disturbing and are being consumed by the masses. It it literally brings me to tears. I know it's it makes me so upset and and angry and again so disturbed to know how many people in this world consume this pornography i mean that's one of the hardest things to digest is not that the, just that this is happening to these women um but that millions and millions and millions of men want to see it and are watching it um but i mean it was it was amazing what you were able to get out of these porn producers, what you were able to get them to admit and, you know, really without shame, you know, and it, it's, it showed me that they're just, they're very confident mm -hmm. that they can get away with this and they are getting away with it. 
And mm-hmm. I don't understand how these laws work. I don't understand why this kind of, why is it okay for abuse to happen or sexual assault to happen if it's being filmed? Because I feel like if something like that happened in another scenario and it wasn't filmed and sold and categorized as porn, these girls could go to the police and say that they were abused, you know? And it would be obvious that they were abused because they have marks all over them. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these these girls and women talk about having, you know, I couldn't get out of bed for a week or I couldn't leave the house for three weeks. You know, I couldn't wear shorts because I was covered in bruises. Um, and, you know, g- women having to go to the hospital because of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is this legal? Because we live in a fucked up world. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's exhausting. Um, in my own personal journey, it's just so dark, Megan. And I know, you know, you and I have this unique fixation with exposing the horrible things in the world. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it makes you at times feel like I just don't want to share this planet with people like this. And um, so the thing that I try to find solace in and courage in is the, the fact that we can make a difference. So I think for me, like, traveling the world documenting sex trafficking really damaged my ability to be in the world because it was impossible for me not to see what was happening beneath the surface mm-hmm. that most people just have no idea about everywhere like everywhere i go now i'm i'm already mapping the situation what's going on the trafficking that's taking place i went on a trip to europe this year to try to just heal myself a bit and see the world again through a different lens. And it was, you know, it was really hard. It was really hard. And, um, but for me, I take courage from the life of those who have gone before us, Martin Luther King Jr., William Wilberforce. Um, I mean, so, you know, Frederick Douglass, so the, the, the women's suffragist movement, so many people who have dedicated their lives and sacrificed their lives to move the needle in really substantial ways. We see what's going on in Iran right now. And I'm, I feel very compelled to make a documentary about the suffering of women in Iran. Mm-hmm. A friend made a, a book um, and it was uh, 28 injustices. It was like meant to be kind of like a, almost like a devotional read, like every day of a month where you see a different injustice that women are facing around the world from female mutilation to sex trafficking to, you know, what's going on in these Middle Eastern countries. And um, so I have to believe that we can make a difference. And um, yeah, so. I mean, so is there is there a legal aspect to your fight? You know, is there anything yes. that people can fight for in terms of changing legislation? Like what is there? I mean, I, I just think like. Part of the way that I attack the porn industry is just by educating people about what's really going on and talking to about it, talking to people about it. But I think also, 
like I want to make it as hard as possible for these people to make to produce this pornography and to profit from it. Um, but I don't know what the best way is to go about that. So I don't know what if you have any recommendations yeah. on that end or if there's anything you're working on on that end. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think on the public health crisis side of this equation, one of the really important things that w where we need to enact laws is around this idea of age verification for accessing pornography. It is literally called adult content. And I don't like that term because it's dignifying and, and, and um, validating of this media genre, which in my view is, is nothing more than just the abuse of women. So, um, but I think that there's clearly a conscience among society that this is for adults and yet there are no protections for children online. So we're 30 years into this experiment of this digital age of the internet. And it's, it has been a, a, a social experiment that none of us signed up for. Most porn consumers describe their first encounter of exposure to pornography, oftentimes unwitting or inadvertent, happening as children. Mm -hmm. And while the wet concrete of their sexuality was still being formed, literally hijacked and sabotaged their sexuality and for many people has resulted in you know all kinds of things from you know you know becoming pedophiles or whatever i'm not saying that happens to every person but there's there's a destructive element and thread there to that so that evidence is clear now we can see the damage that's done even just quantifying it on the brain alone if you look at the neuroscience of what happens to the brain to somebody who becomes a regular pornography consumer. So we've quantified the damage that has that is done, particularly to childhood consumers of pornography. So why haven't we enacted laws that protect children? The internet is a city without walls. And so what we are advocating for now is that big tech and big porn be required to put up age verification walls for the hosting and distributing of all pornographic content. That would require a government issued ID and a credit card to access. So that is just one piece of legislation that is very significant and would you know, protect untold numbers, millions of children growing up online. And that's something for every country to face and to wrestle with. So we released a documentary last year called Raised on Porn, which deals with this subject matter of childhood exposure to pornography. And on our website, we have a petition that we've started to pass age verification laws here in the US. There's some complexity to that because of the way that the internet, the DNA of the way that the internet was founded legally. And, um, but we're trying to dismantle those sacred cows in preference for protecting children. So I think progressive countries like the UK should lead the way in this and shame the United States into passing these laws. Stop preferring the profits of big tech and big porn over the, the health and safety and well-being of children. It's crazy. Um, and then there are laws already on the books that for the what's happening in pornography. 
And what we need to see is a type of Me Too movement happen in the porn industry, where more and more performers are empowered to use their voice to articulate their experience of being coerced and taken advantage of and violated. Currently, because pornographers use consent forms, they bribe them into silence. So they have them sign a consent form before the scene starts. So afterwards they can say, oh, well, you signed a consent form, so it's all above board. So it's a very clever and manipulative way that they approach the creation of this content that you know, has the appearance of letting them off the hook. But I live in Orange County and our task force here has taken a victim-centered approach to addressing the issue of prostitution. Their investigators have a, uh, a, a expert academic understanding of constitutional law and they're building these cases against these really slippery pimp figures who know what they're doing and, um, and use very manipulative and coercive means so that they can't be implicated. Well, the investigators here in Orange County have figured out what they're doing and they are bringing pimps to justice and they're bringing criminal culpability and they're driving traffickers out of Orange County. And, um, and I think that the same level of um, due diligence needs to be applied to pornography and um, that you know Department of Homeland Security would take this on that that they would begin to investigate cases of coercion and um, and begin the work of bringing perpetrators to justice and eradicating this this uh, extremely exploitative criminal way of making this content that you know has resulted in the destruction of so many young women's lives. Um, one, sorry, I'll stop there. I know I just keep going. No, that I mean, it's that's really helpful because I think that I mean, it's how I feel. I know it's how many other people feel. It's such an overwhelming problem, and and we don't know where to begin, and we don't know how to tackle this multi-billion-dollar industry that just seems like it's everywhere. I mean, you can't even go on the internet without being exposed to pornography, really. But I mean, yeah, so yeah, so thank you for spelling that all out. I know that a lot of people will appreciate it. I want to know what people can do to, to, you know, join the fight or support the fight and also where people can watch the um, documentary series mm-hmm. Beyond Fantasy. Yeah, so we're very active on social media. Exodus Cry is our main account. Magic Lantern Pictures is our production company. And Exodus Cry is our activism arm. So we, we're, uh, we believe, like our conviction is that films change people and people change the world. And so um, the films are a very strategic way for us to try to uh, move the needle on some of these things, expose and bring accountability to perpetrators, advocate for victims, um, and help educate and bring awareness into the world, shine a light on this darkness. So if people follow us at Exodus Cry, they'll be kept informed about various campaigns that we have going on. We're we're, um, currently working on a, a new campaign called end teen porn and um 
And this campaign is focused on raising the age of consent for entry into porn from 18 to 21. And um, so we ask people, you know, share our content, um, educate yourself. We have a, a YouTube channel, Magic Lantern Pictures, where these films are available for people to watch for free. And we put out petitions and have regular calls for action. So yeah, uh, thank you for the opportunity just to share that because um, you know this the kind of ch deep systemic change that is needed will only happen if we activate and mobilize an army of people to take action. And I love what um, the director of the Cove said. I can't pronounce his last name. It's Louis something or another. He's a he was a longtime um, photographer for National Geographic. He says you're either an activist or an inactivist. And I have a heart to see an activist generation raise up to see through the cover narrative, to, to behold the deeper truth and to fight for that truth to inform our laws, our conscience and the way we are as, as people, how we are in the world and the society that we create. Thank you so much for talking with me today about all of this. I really appreciate all your work. Um, I really appreciate all the work that you did on this particular documentary. Um, I mean, it, it's really amazing what you were able to get. <laughs> Honestly, it was, you know, to that you were able to get these people to talk. And um, I think that if people watch it, it, it their man, minds will be changed i don't know how they could not be in and i know that it's really hard work to do so so yeah so i appreciate you doing it thank you so much absolutely absolutely i uh i thank you again for the opportunity i remember after you had been you know canceled by twitter we had you on our exodus cry podcast and it's been just amazing to watch your journey since that moment i was so outraged i don't know if i had those feelings of just like a brother that I, I just felt I was so upset on your behalf. And, um, and it's been amazing to see what has happened, transpired in your life since then. So I just thank you for taking these issues on and I'm, I'm just a huge fan and just really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much. That's very kind. I appreciate your support and I hope that we'll be able to stay in touch. I hope that we'll get to speak again in the future. Absolutely. Definitely. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Megan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. We have been ad-free, sponsorship-free, wealthy investor-free, and fully independent since 2012. If you enjoy this podcast, and if you value independent women's media, by women, for women, no compromises, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.